0: The underlying thing from this chapter is there are some tough women in this chapter, and I love them.
1: Welcome to the Saints Podcast. I'm Ben Godfrey.
2: And I'm Shailen Back. Thank you for joining us today. We are going to be discussing Chapter 11 of Saints, Volume 2, A Glorious Privilege.
1: And we're joined today by Carrie Snow. Manager of Collections Care at the Church History Museum in Salt Lake City. Welcome, Carrie. Hi. Maybe you could start off so our listeners know who are you and what do you do at the museum and yeah. what's your interest so in church not history? So I'm just a
0: voice of vague authority. <laughs> um, I am over the team that takes care of the collections as they come into the museum, cataloging them, storing them, preparing them for storage. We do inventory work um, at the museum and all over the historic sites. So if you see something in a historic site and it looks old, it is a museum item. Don't touch it. Um, but we also install and deinstall the exhibitions there at the museum, as well as run loans back and forth to other museums as needed.
1: Very cool. What's one of the recent exhibits, maybe that you worked on? Our listeners might be able to see
0: the most recent exhibit I have worked on will be the International Art Competition, the 11th International Art Competition, and then I'll be working on the 12th International Art Competition that will open in a few years. So.
1: Which, if you haven't seen that, there's exhibits online at history.churchofjesuschrist.org where you can see a lot of the amazing art that's part of the competition. You can
0: see several art competitions back. So you get a whole retrospective of of everything we've done.
1: It's pretty amazing. And if you are a budding artist or if you're a professional artist, it's a great thing to submit your art to. And uh, as Carrie said, there's acquisitions that are part of the competition. We purchased about
0: 20 pieces of competition. Oh, wow. um, so it's one of our main ways to kind of grow the
2: competition, especially with international pieces every year. So Very cool. So let's learn more about Anne, Eliza, and Jacob Seacrest. What's their story? Oh, this is,
0: like I said, for me, this is tough lady, tough lady chapter, and she's probably the toughest. So the chapter opens, she's just seen her husband, Jacob, off on a mission to Germany. And she's got three little ones at home, which sounds a, a little weird. Odd, you know, we're kind of still—this is still in the phase where married men went out on missions. Um, but she's got three little ones at home. She's also expecting any day now child number four. And so she sends her husband off, and the baby is born. And she said, we had him weighed. He is ten and a half pounds. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> like, right there. Tough lady status right there. <laughs> and she writes to her husband because they can— before they get on the boat, there's still ways for them to get letters. And she says, I haven't named him. If there is a particular name you would like, let me know. And she gets a letter a short time later, and it's clear that her letter to him, she he hadn't received her yeah, letter. They've
1: crossed in the mail somewhere. Somewhere,
0: yeah. But they were thinking about the same subject. And he says, I had a dream where, you know, there were our three children, and you were holding in our arms our newborn son. And if it is a boy, name him Nephi. And Anna Eliza does, and she names him Heber Nephi Sechrist.
2: And Jacob was going to be gone for three years. Three and years. I complained about the only two weeks of parental leave that my husband got <laughs> when, when I last gave birth.
0: <laughs> right? So she's she's— you know these women who are giving up their their husbands to go on missions we talk about oh the trials of a missionary but just imagine being a woman trying mm-hmm. to run a household without our modern conveniences and your kids and and handle all that for extended time that's why i say she's a tough lady
1: she is and that's one of the things that i've had reviewers of saints who have read the entire book and one of the things that they have commented on is They've appreciated knowing about those experiences, Mm -hmm. whether it's Eliza or the missionary wives of the apostles as they were out serving. And learning about what they were going through at the same time, I think that's something that people have really enjoyed. I know it is because this is what they've said in their reviews is they... Like, hey, I'd never heard this story, and I'm so glad that we mm. we actually now get to hear about what was happening on the home front. Yeah, yeah.
0: it I think makes a big difference. It gives you a gives you a fuller picture of what's going on, but I think speaks to you know we we have these wonderful stories about in this chapter about these events and how they've strengthened these missionaries' faith while they're out. But you have to think about all the corollary experiences their families are having back home about, wow, it's worth it to send my husband off or send my family members off because I'm having some of these experiences too where my faith is strengthened and, and this is what the Lord's asking me to do.
2: And then because of Jacob's sacrifice and going on a mission and leaving his family at home, he baptizes Johann Dorius So Johann Dorius was a missionary in Denmark. When was he baptized? How long had he been a member of the church? So he's only
0: been baptized not very long. He gets baptized in um, the summer of 1852. So he's pretty young. He and his father are baptized along with his younger sister, Augusta. Um, Put a pin in Augusta's name. We're going to talk about her a little later. And so, but the rest of their family doesn't join the church, and it's actually pretty divisive for the family. The mother, um, Johan's mother, uses it as grounds for divorce, and there's three younger siblings. So he gets called on this mission, and everything's going great. It's He's preaching, and it's awesome, and they hear stuff in the kind of outside, and it turns out there are men that are coming, and he leaves the building, and they start—it feels like a poke in his leg— and then they just kind of jump on him, and they manage to get him to this house of a member to take care of, because um, they have been beating him with farm implements, and it's it's that's bad enough. But then they come in, and there's this cute little woman who just says they have to get through me, and <laughs> tough lady. I this the underlying thing from this chapter is there are some tough women in this chapter, and I love them. And they kind of push her aside, and they take him out, and all the presence of mine he has where he says. He thinks about God this entire time that he's being beaten, not like, I'm going to die, not like, why did I do this? He's just thinking about the Lord.
1: Maybe we could play a little clip here from the book, pretty dramatic and kind of violent moment that happens to these two
3: people. A moment later, the drunken men burst into the room. The woman tried to stop them, but they shoved her against the wall. They surrounded the bed and started thrashing Johann's bruised and lacerated body. Desperate to keep conscious and composed, Johann thought about God. But then the mob seized his arms and dragged him out of bed and into the night. It's pretty incredible.
1: It reminded me when I first read that account, I thought it's surprising how similar this sounds to Kirtland. It sounds like Sydney being dragged out of the house, mm-hmm. and it sounds like Missouri w- w- in Far West. And I'm thinking, how is this happening again? And I mean, and we're clear across the sea in another country, and it's just the same thing again.
0: I know. I read the chapter, and I was like, again with this? And there had been some things where the the members of the church were trying to get protection from local governments to be able to preach and stuff, because there had been some things. But all throughout the chapter, you still see little bits of opposition to certain people on their missions, and that kind of impedes the work. But it keeps going on, and it's just amazing.
2: You know, that feels like a flashback to Kirtland and Missouri. There is some good, like those other horrific accounts that we have that comes out of this violence. And one of the things is... Zorin is that Thura. We, Zorin Thura. He actually saves him. So Johan would have died. They were going to throw him into a river. Yeah, And he, he kind is, of makes his way in and then tell us what happened. He is
0: just this... I would imagine... I imagine him as this sort of mountain of a man. You know, he's just this... Good, upstanding citizen. He's you know, a member of the local cavalry. He, they knew he was an athlete. He's just a big guy. And the guys are taking him out, gonna go baptize the preacher in the water, in the river. I don't know if that's the same baptism you and I are familiar with, but. And Soren says, I'll take care of this preacher, and I doubt any of you cowards will try to stop me. And they kind of drop Johan, give him a couple kicks, and then Soren just picks him up and takes him back to the house where he had been staying. And doesn't just leave him there, he comes back the next day, and he asks Johann, why is he doing that? And he has the best quote. It's just a great quote. He says, this is no more than befell God's people in earlier times, and such chastisements are intended to humble us before the Lord. How can anyone, after getting beaten, not once but twice, just have this wonderful statement about how thankful they are and how this is a bizarre blessing, and, and he is just happy to to be a missionary and to be a member of the church and to have these experiences. It's just, it's going back to all these things that, you know, you hear in Ohio and Missouri and Kirtland. These people are, despite all
2: their hardships, are just grateful for their membership in the church. And they get stronger, but then other people see that strength. Yeah. And Soren, for example, the next day, he wanted to talk to Johan about the (laughs) restored gospel.
1: Yeah. As I read saints, I kind of like that scripture says to liken the scriptures unto yourselves. And this is one of those moments, I know saints is not scripture, not suggesting that, (laughs) but it is our history. And one of the things that's beautiful about it is it teaches us we can learn from the past. And when I think of that experience, and I think of some of the trials, we all have them. Man, here's somebody who just was able to have this kind of almost serene perspective. And maybe he didn't like it, like it wasn't that serene at the moment. We don't hear the,
0: ouch, this hurts, don't touch me there kind of thing. But yeah, it it is these, just this moment of like, I'm getting beat up and I'm thinking about God, not what's going to happen to me, I'm going to die. And at the end, this is such chastisements are meant to humble us for the Lord. Like, I would not be of that mindset.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure I could either. Johan also... He's not done, I mean, after this whole episode, he goes on and he's soon arrested. Yeah, let's listen to another little clip here from the book about that arrest and who he
3: is surprised to meet in jail. As the missionary spoke to the innkeeper, a police officer stepped out of a nearby room and demanded to see Johann's passport. It is in Fredericksta, Johann explained. You are under arrest, said the officer who then turned to Johann's companion and demanded his passport. When the missionary could not produce it, the officer arrested him too and led both men to a room to await interrogation. To their surprise, Johan and his companion found the room full of Norwegian saints, women, and men who had also been arrested. Among them were several Danish missionaries, including one who had been in custody for two weeks.
0: Yeah, can you imagine you're getting arrested which is embarrassing enough, but at least you're in good company <laughs> especially after getting beaten to death. And so there in basically it's like an entire ward is almost there, you know, kind of thing. And but the jailers were very nice and they let them sing and pray and kind of worship as as they may, but they were there for several weeks and they finally get taken before a judge and the judge Is equating them the same way he would equate, like, a a thief or a criminal, just basically. And he's just kind of interrogating them and trying to say, in a legalistic way so he doesn't get in trouble, like, basically, go back, leave us alone. We don't want you here. And he, you know, he has said, you know, would you return to Denmark if you were liberated from prison? And Johan, being Johan, not till God shall release me through his servants who sent me here. Like, Kind of a a lippy response, but a true (laughs) one, and I I love it. And then the judge keeps trying to get like, well, you at least stop baptizing people. And he said, if your priest can show me what I'm doing is wrong, then yes, I will stop. And the judge says, well, it's beneath the dignity of our priest to argue with someone like you, and they throw him back in jail. (laughs) Like, he can't win for trying.
1: (laughs) So a little behind-the-scenes action here for our podcast Mm -hmm. listeners our producer, Kurt Dahl, who is here with us in the studio, as we were preparing to record the episode today, mentioned that his family, in fact, his third great-grandfather, was baptized by Johan in Frederikstad. So the the legacy of this man and his mission has brought our producer into the very room with us today as we record the podcast. <laughs> Pretty amazing.
2: That's incredible. So... Also, when they're in jail, they meet someone named, so this is another Johan. His name's Johan Andreas Jensen. Yes. Right? So I thought this story was really interesting. Oh, my gosh. It's so Tell it's us about this other Johan. hilarious.
0: Johann. In the midst of all Johan getting beaten, and they meet Johann Andreas Jensen, and he's a sea captain, but he's very religious, and he's kind of been searching for, you know, his faith for years and years and years. He's giving stuff to the poor, preaching, and crying, repents in the streets. He wants to meet with King Oscar of Sweden to talk to him about it, and they keep refusing him. And so he calls the king of Sweden an exalted sinner and is in, thrown in jail. <laughs> so these two Johans, a pair of Johans, um, are in jail, and they're talking, and he's like, oh, this is very interesting. You're here for this. I'm here for this. But I really am not really interested in your message until – They kind of have a little service, and someone bears their testimony, and he's like, hold on, maybe there's something to this. And so they're preaching to him, and the members and and Johan try to get him released so he can be baptized. And uh, Johan Jensen, um, they turn him down. They're like, you're in jail. We're not going to release you to get baptized. But he does promise that he is going to get baptized once he gets out. And he said... This is what Yo- Johann Dorius says. He says, this brought us all to humble thanksgiving to God, and truly it was a glorious day for us. We sang and praised God for his goodness. In the midst, you're in a jail, and you're singing and praising <laughs> for his goodness. Once again, Johan, hats off to you. I could not be thinking this in jail.
1: <laughs> it makes me wonder, have you ever had those moments where you think, why in the world did I get this calling? Or, you know, why was I asked to do this thing? And then in the middle of it, you meet someone or you have an experience, and then you're like, ah, I got
0: it. It's all worth it. This one moment, one person, one conversation sometimes, it's all worth it. Right.
1: And so for our pair of Johans here, it's got (laughs) to feel like, I would think that Johan is thinking, okay, I was meant to meet this captain. I was supposed to be here to bring this man the Restored gospel,
0: I mean, because how could he not? I mean, here's this guy, he's already giving up all his money and he's preaching to people and he's worried about his faith and repentance and everything. Of course, you had to cross paths, and it's just this perfect moment in a mission that makes it all worth it,
2: totally. So, here we have Johan Dorius, our missionary Johan, mm-hmm. and his family had kind of broken apart, yeah, when they're very most fractured. Of the family Mom members has had... the,
0: the younger siblings, and oh, okay. dad. We all know Johan's on his mission, and there's dad and an older brother, Carl, in Denmark, and then we get to his sister,
2: Yes, you told us to put a pin in Augusta, so I think this might be a good time to talk about her. Yeah,
0: Augusta is coming across the plane. She is all of 14, so just picture this. 14, she is not traveling with her family. She's traveling with another family. And about 28, I believe, other saints from Denmark. And the rest are all English-speaking. She's coming across the plains with Erastus snow. And so just imagine that she's got this trying to figure out what these people are saying because English makes no sense to non-native speakers it's just a bunch of sounds that are, right. you might as well just throw some rocks into a bag and shuffle it around and it's probably a pretty good approximation for them but they still despite this language difference they meet with them they are having their service with them they sing to them and she's doing the things that normal teenagers would do they're kind of her and her friends would kind of run up to the front of the wagon train so they could kind of leave everybody else behind very very teenagery but they're Getting to the end of their journey, and as you can imagine, everyone's tired, and that includes the oxen, and they're running low on food, and about 150 miles out from the valley, they run out of flour, so they have to send somebody ahead to kind of get relief, and so they're going, and and that's, if you've ever come that way, you know it's just mountains and terrain, and, and you're like, uh, more of this. When is
1: this going to end?
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly, you know, and... They finally get to Echo Canyon, the mouth of Echo Canyon, and they see a rider because, like I mentioned, they had been kind of running up ahead of everybody else. And there he is bringing them in the valley and he brings them food and crackers and everything. When they finally get there, they have a meal of raisin bread and rice, and it is the most glorious thing that she has ever tasted because she's been living on basically flour and water and buffalo meat. But this 14-year-old girl in the midst of it is still trying to struggle with where is my family. She doesn't know anybody of her family. She doesn't know what's going to happen to her mother and her youngest siblings. She has learned about, you know, the kingdom of God. But she is doesn't know how that's going to work for her. So pretty heavy stuff. She's a tough kid at, at age 14 dealing
1: with this. We've got lots more to come from Augusta as the book continues on. We're going to follow her story in, in future episodes And she is tough, and she's got a lot to share. I do have a tiny little spoiler alert for, I guess, fans of Jacob Seacrest. Jacob Seacrest is returning with this company, and uh, he actually passed away on the return journey. So it wasn't as if it was just all fun and games. It was a difficult journey. No. Now, on another part of this chapter, in, in a totally different part of the world, we have George Q. Cannon. Yes. George is one of my favorites, and we have lots to learn about George and his friend Jonathan Napella. Can you tell us a little bit about what's happening on that side of the work?
0: So George has been a missionary, and for those of you who kind of just know George Q Cannon in his later years, just equate that that they're very two different. He's a young guy, he's tongue-tied, he's just really shy. He's your average missionary just getting sent out. And he's in Hawaii. And he's been laboring, and they've been building up various congregations on the island of Maui. He runs into Jonathan and Kitty Napela, and Jonathan was very interested in the gospel, but it took him several months to get baptized after he had been introduced because uh, his local church there was kind of saying, these Mormons, a little kooky, you Don't want anything to do with them, but finally he is baptized. Uh, George Q. Cannon, almost from the moment that he baptizes Jonathan, they start working on a translation of the Book of Mormon into Hawaiian. So if you can imagine trying, when you have a very limited understanding of a language, to try to put it in a book as complex as the Book of Mormon, we're not translating, you know, Hop on Pop or Dr. Seuss into this. (laughs) We're, We're doing some complex stuff. And George would go through the best of his ability, kind of scribble something down, hand it to Jonathan. Jonathan was an educated lawyer, so they would go back and forth. And over time, he got to be very, very good, as you would imagine, doing all this translation. And he gets to a point, and he gets some missionaries come and bring him news from home, so to speak. He gets a trio of letters and some newspapers. And uh, one of the letters is from his uncle, John Taylor. And he says, hey, I just got back from my mission. You should probably get home, too. Elizabeth, the young girl that you've been courting, misses you and would like you to come home kind of thing and I'm sure as a young man he's like, "Yeah, she's she's pretty nice. Let's <laughs> let's get back to that." But then he gets another letter, one of those trios is from Willard Richards and he says, "I think you should stay and complete this translation and as you can imagine, going home, staying, going home." And George has Once again, this beautiful thing, and he's kind of is acknowledging that these saints need this Book of Mormon, they need this blessing, and I need to be able to give it to them. And he kind of acknowledges how much he's grown. He said, "My tongue and language are far too feeble to express my feelings I experience upon pondering the work of the Lord. Oh, that my tongue and my time and my talents and all that I have or possess may be employed to honor His honor and glory in glorifying His name and spreading." a knowledge of his attributes wherever my lot may be cast. And so he decides to stay to finish that Book of Mormon.
1: And he does finish it. And as we're going to find out in later chapters, and you can certainly go on to the gospel library in the church history section and look at the topics about Hawaii and George Q. Cannon and Jonathan Napella, you'll find that the history of the church in Hawaii is remarkable. And, mm-hmm. and I've got to believe that part of that is because the Book of Mormon was translated so early into their language. Yeah. And that George and Joseph Napella and others that taught the native Hawaiian people, they were given all of the rights and privileges of everybody else, and they began to run the church themselves. That has to be a huge part of why.
0: Yeah, to have that freedom where you're studying the gospel— in your own language and not have it go through another conduit. It can go between you and your testimony and the Lord is amazing. And yeah, I could I feel like it could not have done anything but strengthen those members.
2: Because they're given the opportunity to lead and to yeah. teach. And this is just fascinating to me. This chapter has taken us of, in many places around the world. So in Denmark and Norway, and actually in Denmark, that was where the first non-English copy of the Book of Mormon was translated, so into Danish. And then here we have the Hawaiian copy of the Book of Mormon. And I guess I just take that for granted because now we have so many languages. I don't even know how many languages the Book of Mormon is translated into, but I'd never... Stop to think about that process and that it was these early missionaries working off the knowledge of their second language, working with members of the church that
1: are native yeah, to that area. Yeah, there's no
0: dictionary. I don't think there's a Hawaiian to English dictionary right. at this point. Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, they really and, have only had the Hawaiian language written, I mean, less than 100 years at that point. Like, yeah. this is a pretty amazing thing that they pulled it off. Mm-hmm. In later chapters, we're going to meet the people who first translated the Book of Mormon into Spanish as well. So we get a lot of firsts in Saints, Volume 2, when it comes to translating the Book of Mormon. Well, Carrie Snow, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about saints. We appreciate you being here with us. Invite our listeners to come over to the Church History Museum. They might spot you there someday.
0: I know. I'm probably going to be lifting a painting, toting something.
1: Well, we appreciate you being here with us, and we invite you, our listeners, to join us again on the next episode, where we'll talk more about Saints, Volume 2. I'm Ben Godfrey.
2: And I'm Shailen Back.
1: Thank you for listening.